Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and I'm coming to you live from a beautiful farm in Ibiza, Spain. I just returned from a week in the Saharan Desert to demarcate a new chapter in my life, one which I'll share more about in upcoming episodes. But today, I'm very excited to release an episode with one of my favorite authors of all time, Stephen Pressfield. Stephen Pressfield wrote the seminal classics, The War of Art, as well as Turning Pro. And we talk a lot in this episode about the hero's journey and the artist's journey, and what it means to truly show up for your creative work. What does it mean to turn pro, to commit to your creative process? And what I love about Stephen is his journey has been somewhat circuitous, and it wasn't until later in life that he found profound success. And that determination, that grit, that willingness to show up to his creative process, to receive the muse, if you will, is something I deeply admire about Stephen and his work. I think you'll get a tremendous amount of value from what we share, and I am extremely excited to uh, share this episode with you guys. Before we get into it, I want to give a shout out to my sponsor, Mudwater. If you do not already drink Mudwater, I highly recommend it. It's part of my routine. They have an incredible beverage with a fraction of the caffeine of coffee, but all of the delicious natural organic ingredients uh, from adaptogenic mushrooms to chai spice. It's a sumptuous beverage that I think uh, can become part of one's uh, mindful routine, which is where I incorporate it um, with meditation, with writing. Uh, in the spirit of this episode, I think uh, you know having, having that cup of coffee replaced in the late afternoon hours to allow the muse to come through with, uh, with a beautiful mud water uh, is the way to go. And if you're keen, please use the code PEAKMIND and you get a discount on your subscription at checkout. And with that, and without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Stephen Pressfield. All right, I am here in the home of Mr. Stephen Pressfield. Stephen, thank you for uh, welcoming me. Hey, Michael, it's great to have you out here. We've been trying to do this for like a year or so. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, I had one of my favorite conversations, actually, uh, frankly, uh, on the podcast period with you. Um about a little over a year ago, just yeah. before my father's yeah. passing, and, uh, and and you and I were chatting in uh, in Tulum. I was deep in the Yucatan yeah, when we yeah. tried to make our yeah. last conversation happen, but um, all in good time. And I'm I'm extraordinarily excited to be here uh, to see the uh, the beauty that you surround yourself with, and uh, and frankly to sit down and have uh, have an hour to just you know kind of chat about some of the things that you're in my view deeply deeply wise about and I know you're a humble man so I won't I won't pump it up too much but I will say and I think it goes without saying that you have as someone who's working on a book done what I think many aspire to do which is to write something worth reading and not only write something worth reading but to write something that actually 
uh, transforms people's lives. And I can say, you know, without question that your work has, has changed my life. And, um, and I want to kind of delve deeply into it because there's so many aspects of your work that I admire, but what, one of the things which I'd love to sort of jump off with is I think we live in, in some ways, a, uh, a youth obsessed culture and a culture that I think that, that celebrates people putting it out there that they figured it all out and they're, 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 they're winning, they're, they're winning the game. And I think oftentimes that is a, a false projection, shall we say. And I think I can say even for myself and for the benefit of those listening, I think, uh, you know, we're always a work in progress and I'm definitely a work in progress. And, uh, and, and sometimes I feel like we all, we feel like, and you and I were talking about this before, before we hit record, but about this notion of time and the preciousness of time. Um, and, and also f- from my point of view, um, you know, I think our culture in some ways values, uh, you know, and, ex- and, and glorifies youth. But I, I often look to, and one of the things I love about the books is you have done deep research and history into warrior cultures and to, and, and into history and the wisdom of history. And I've had the great pleasure and just sat with, uh, a Native American elder down in Mexico, uh-huh. and I saw the virtue and value of a culture that truly um, celebrates the wisdom uh, of those who have walked a little bit longer in uh-huh. this life. And as I was researching for the show, I, I didn't realize, I, I knew you had written, you had created an incredible body of work, but I wasn't aware that you published over 20 books. And then what I, the other piece that I, and I knew you, because I knew your, your history in regards to, and I'd love to delve a little bit into uh-huh. it, into your, into your sort of, the way that you started, which was, you know, which is, the, you know, some blue collar aspects, doing a lot of different things to sort of figure out your way. But you didn't really publish, as, as I understand, your first book until 55. Is that correct? Yeah, something like that. 53, 54, something like that. Yeah. 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 So, so yeah. So, anyway. So, there's hope. Yeah, there is hope. I, I have yet to. And uh, I'm in my 40s. But I, but I feel like, I feel like that, that is actually the piece is, is for those listening, because I get messaged a lot by people who feel like, oh, I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And not only haven't I figured it out, but... Uh, I'm, I'm a little despondent because, um, I feel like I should have by now. And as someone who, uh, you know, has taken a, I think a quite a beautiful journey through this life, but didn't necessarily figure it out at 20. What are some of the, 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 I don't know, lessons maybe? What are some of the, what are some of the, take, take me through a story of well, some I'll of the things you learned. I'll tell you one learned. story that just Please. immediately to mind. Yes. Um, I think I was like 30 or something like that. And, uh, I had been, I'm from New York originally, and I'd been on kind of an odyssey of being lost in space out in the rest of the country and around like that. And I came back to New York. I'll give you the long version of the story you can cut. I used to, my original, I had a boss. My first job was as an office boy in advertising. I had a boss named David Ledick who became a mentor to me and got me my first job as a writer. And he was the only one, including my family, who sort of kept up with me while I was, you know, kind of in the wilderness. So I'm back in New York. I'm driving a cab. I'm working as a bartender. I'm lost in space. And I happened to see him on the street. 
And I said, I gotta hate it, hail him, but I chickened out. I couldn't talk to him, you know? And I just, you know, beat myself up for days over this. And then I happened to be in the same place and I saw him again. And this time I did, you know, reach out to him, you know, and he, he sort of looked me over and he kind of got the picture in a hurry. And he said, uh, let me take you out to dinner and we'll talk, you know? So at one point during the dinner, I said to him, David, I'm so fucked up. We can talk, we can say that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I don't know what's going on, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he said to me, how old are you? And I said, I'm 30, you know? And he said, it's been my experience, anybody who's got it together at 30 is probably an asshole. <laughs> you just haven't lived long enough, you know, and you haven't, you know. So that really, that was a, that was a great moment for me. It really inspired me to, that maybe there was some hope. And it was also a great moment in that, this guy who really did have it together took the time, you know, to take take care of me and put himself at my disposal, you know, for an evening. And uh, that was uh, was a bit of a turning point for me. And he's still friends with me. I think he's now 92 or something like that. And he's fantastic. If he were here right now, you know, you would go to the gym with him. You'd go surfing with him. You know, he's just an amazing guy. I love that. And he took the time, even though it's a... I think that's one of the things I also love about... Uh, as I'm writing this book about relationships is the people that will take a stand and be of service for no other reason than it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And that guy sounds like an exemplification yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of people like that, you know? Yeah, exactly. One of the things that strikes me, uh, you know, one from the, the research I've done and also some of the conversations we've had previously is I think there's, there's, there's oftentimes, at least in our perception, a duality between sort of the artist, if you will, and uh, the warrior. The, oftentimes, I feel like those are considered almost separate archetypes. Uh-huh. And, you know, an artist is, you know, has a certain way of being right. oftentimes airy softer, airy fair, yeah, right. exactly. Uh-huh. Whereas the warrior is oftentimes yeah. a little more the alpha. What I love about what I think, at least as it, as it occurs to me, and this is, this is what I want to ask, about your work is it brings together these two worlds into a beautiful alchemy. And what I mean by that is you, you honor things like the muse, this notion of inspiration, you honor the, the art, but you don't also succumb to forgive my, for lack of a better word, bullshit, the bullshit uh-huh. of, of, of buying into your own excuses uh-huh. and take a bit of an ethos as it relates to the warrior of the, this notion of turning pro, which we will go into later, but this notion of actually like the discipline of, of creation. And for me, uh, and I'm still honestly working on buying that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. sometimes I fall a little more uh-huh. into the artist uh, airy-fairy uh-huh. camp and sometimes, and I feel like when I'm most holistic, I embody both, and those are, that's when I feel good. But can you talk a little bit about how those two worlds can most effectively uh, dance together? Ah, great question. I mean, it's, it's an odd combination, being an artist or trying to create some kind of creative work, of a blue-collar, a blue-collar ethic yeah. and of also the airy-fairy you know, looking for the, you know, um, inspiration to come out of the air. And it seems to me that um, the muse, who I absolutely believe in, the goddess, that's going to give you whatever it is that, you, that you're going to get, because you're not going to be producing it yourself, appreciates a blue collar. I wear these boots, you know, this is like, I've been wearing these boots for like 30 years, 
And it's just sort of when I work. And it's just kind of to reinforce for me, like I feel like uh, I'm showing up when the whistle blows, you know? And I think that the, um, the powers that be, the mysterious powers appreciate that, you know? Yeah. I have a thing like, I always believe that like, the muse kind of flies overhead each day, you know, and looks down on us, kind of like Santa Claus, you know, and she looks down on, on you, Michael, and she says, you know, is he doing his work today, or is he, is he fucking around, you know, yeah. and if, and she wants to see you sweating, and, and putting in the effort, you know, and she wants you to show up each day on time, and stay there for the whole day, and if you do that, she will grant you her favors, and that's my whole concept of, of how to work, um, so, the, the sort of warrior ethic is the ethic of um, the virtues of a warrior would be courage, perseverance, patience, um, love of the game for the game itself, love of the enemy, you know, that sort of thing. And those are the same virtues, I think, of an artist. Whether you're a choreographer, like Twyla Tharp's book, The Creative Habit, Twyla Tharp, the choreographer, you think about... Uh, you know, dancing and flitting around the studio, but she's like a hardcore, you know, no nonsense kind of a gal, you know. And I think that's the way, that's the way work happens. You know, it's 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 a a crazy amalgam of blue collar ethic and you know, really out there to let it happen type of stuff. Yeah. So to delve a little bit deeper into that, because I think as I'm listening. And I get the sense of it because I have had, I've been blessed with certain moments where those, that, that combination has coalesced beautifully and, and the muse has moved through me. What's interesting is, I, I'll use the example of Global Citizen just because folks know, but for example, being a vessel through which this vision moved and we you know, produced this beautiful work, which continues to this day, um, was in my view about being a vessel. It was about being a muse for a greater vision to move through me um, but what's interesting is when I attached that vision to the meanness, in other words, when my ego uh, mm. was too attached to, in some ways, the work that had already passed in terms of uh -huh. my vision of my dharma, it actually kept me from the listening to the muse wanting to speak through me for the next iteration, the next chapter, if you will. As someone who's both moved through, as, as I would say, you know, various expressions professionally, but also who's been able to move through and navigate the discernment, I think, that it takes to know when it's the muse and when it's resistance or, or your own bullshit or creativity, uh, you know, creative, you know, sometimes like right now, as I expressed to you before, you know, I have a vision for publishing my first book. Uh -huh. I also, and you know, sometimes sabotage looks a variety of different ways. Uh -huh. Sometimes it looks pretty enticing. It said someone offered me a million dollars to do this other thing, which uh -huh. would take me off my path. I use that only to say the discernment of the warrior and also the listening that I feel like uh, is, is, is part of that conversation with the muse is sometimes tricky. And, it's and, very tricky always, yeah. And so for those listening who may feel like, you know what, I'm not right now in conversation with the muse. Is it first stepping into the warrior and just showing up to your desk every day? Or how do you get in co proper conversation that's, with the muse? Yeah, that's what I would say absolutely. It's yeah. sort of a, a blue-collar scenario of showing up every day when the factory bell rings. And I, I'll say this. I've been working on a book now, a new book, for, I don't know, nine months or a year or something. And it's been very hard to hit the muse, you know? 
I mean, a lot of it has been really grinding, and I'm just and and um, and I believe in grinding, you know. And I'm sort of hoping that at some point it's kind of going to kick in, yeah. You know, and there'll be uh, there'll be a moment when the flame really comes to right now. I'm really shoveling, I'm doing a lot of that sort of stuff, and I think. Um, if anybody's listening and, 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 and looking to like contact the muse as we're talking here, I would put that out of, out of their mind. And I try to put it out of my, I'm trying for that, but, um, you know, a lot of it is just the daily hard, hard work of just, you know, trying and just keeping putting, putting in the hours of just working. Yeah. Um, God bless us when it happens, when the great thing happens, when a, a flow strikes, but, um, it's uh, a lot of it is about grinding. Yes. So to that, okay. So just to flesh that out a bit, because one of the things, one of the concepts that I think was, at least for me, revolutionary that came out of your work, which I think is related to grinding, but but also in some ways is the is the thing that that makes me go to the left frequently, which is the manifestation of resistance. Right. As uh-huh. you know. I find oftentimes it's just starting that's the hardest part, right? That's where it's like it's like breaking through that initial resistance. Yeah. Um, but when you're sitting down, say you're getting up every day, you know, 8 a.m., and, and you're committed to that process, which I do find when I do commit that way, I am oftentimes more, uh-huh. more graced by presence. Uh-huh. But the opportunities to distract myself or get thrown off actually showing up at 8 a.m. are significant. Can you describe, just for those who may not have had the benefit of listening to a previous show, um, what is resistance and how does it manifest? Um, resistance is, um, well, let me start as a writer. Please. If you're sitting down at the blank page, you're sitting down at a typewriter, a computer screen, a blank page, you can feel a negative force radiating off that page right into your face. And that force is trying to uh, distract you, come up with any other reason to make you go away. It's the same thing like if you were to buy a Stairmaster and bring it home and you're committed, you're going to lose 40 pounds, you know? And then the Stairmaster sits and gathers dust in the attic, you know? It's that force that's trying to sabotage you, trying to keep you from getting to that, that next level. And the voice in your head, and I know you know this, Michael, will say things to you like, um, you're not worthy, you're a dilettante, you're a bum, you don't have any good, any, any original ideas, this idea that you have now, it's been done a million times in the past, way better than you'll ever, et cetera, et cetera. And it will also try to distract you, um, resistance will, um, with other things that seem like they're more fun at the moment, rather than this grinding hard work that you have to do. And resistance is incredibly nuanced, and subtle and diabolical in terms of, I mean, it has a it has a living, breathing intelligence and knows you and knows how to psych you out. So that's, to me, like in the War of Art, one of the first things that it says at this very start is it's uh, there's a secret that real writers know that wannabe writers don't know. And the secret is this, that it's not the writing part that's hard, it's the sitting down to write. And I apply that across any art or any entrepreneurial thing. The sitting down is hard because resistance, this force with a capital R, is constantly trying to distract you and pull you away and get you into some other activity, some shadow activity that'll keep you from doing what you you really know you should do. 
What happened? Because for me, the question I ask myself, and, and this is sometimes where is something an expression of intuition and where is it an expression of fear? And and to sort of bring that a little Can bit further. Can you give me a specific example? Yeah, I'll give you a very specific example because my question right now is whether or not this is a shadow uh, uh, resistance. So you mean your uh, million dollar offer? Yeah, yeah. So exactly. So one is the book, right? Which has a promise of nothing. I've worked on it for a year and a half. I'm still, honestly, I'm, I'm uh -huh. almost to the finish line, but in the proposal stage, uh, not that much further from when we spoke a year ago. Although uh -huh. I put in weeks, literally, where I forced myself to go sit in that chair, and I've written hundreds of pages. I just scrapped many of those. Um, so this, to me, feels like an exemplification of. A truth, not my sole truth, but a, but a unique truth that I would like to offer to the world. You mean this offer that you got? This no, the book. Oh, the book. The book. Okay. So that's that. So that to me feels like an authentic expression uh -huh. of my unique. It feels uh -huh. like an aspect of my dharma. Uh -huh. The other is something I'm intellectually excited by. It's not a. Uh, it's not a. You know, just a random. It's not like a. Oh, okay, well, but it's a very enticing offer of, of doing something that I'm actually very interested in, and it's tied right now to a million dollars. However, it's tied also to a context in which I don't necessarily have definitive trust. I don't have a def definitive feeling of safety, which sometimes that can be exciting, but also, and perhaps more importantly, I, I, even though it feels like it maybe is a side project, I have a sense that it could become all-consuming and... In a bad way. Correct. Uh -huh. And while enticing, while, all, you know, while I see the value of the upside, which is not insignificant, I also recognize sometimes it doesn't feel totally aligned. But, it, but right now, and, and this is where it's interesting, right? Because the, the part of it going to crap, I can totally see, and that's, it's a really interesting to mentally masturbate around. That said, even the enticement of the excitement of it all, if I'm t totally honest with myself, is all, the entire thing is likely cr a creation of my resistance. Because uh -huh. to, to your point, uh -huh. I feel like, and I could be wrong, but I feel like resistance is so savvy because it's so, it sort of knows you and your soft triggers. Kind of like your relative at Thanksgiving dinner that just knows the exact thing to say to like press your buttons. Yeah, yeah. That I feel like, and I, you know, and, and I just use it as an example. It's not the best example. But how does one know? Because it would be very hard to say no to that opportunity. Yet if I'm really honest with myself, I feel like it's probably an exemplification uh -huh. of distraction, resistance, self-sabotage. Uh -huh as opposed to staying the course on the thing, which is hard as hell and has no lucrative promise, uh -huh. but feels probably like a unique uh -huh. expression of, of what I'm supposed to do in the world. Well, this is great, Michael. <laughs> this is exactly, this is kind of the crucible of resistance that we're talking about. Yeah. And it's, and it's um, I think resistance is so diabolical yeah. that it, it even can bring the universe to you. Mm. I swear that force produced this offer, this million-dollar offer. Yeah. You know, it just drew it to you. And um, it's obvious to me that that's a form of resistance, you know. And if you do that, you know, you're going to go down the rabbit hole. On the other hand, let me say this. A few years ago, I got one of those offers. Mm -hmm. And I actually had a, I had a manager at the time. And uh, it was an offer for big money. I knew I didn't want to do this. It was a kind of a dumb thing. And I remember he said to me, Steve... I'm speaking on behalf of my children. He said, please, take this job, you know? And, <laughs> and I, I did, 
and it was a waste of time. And I did go off on a bad track, but I did make some money. Yeah. And that money kind of, you know, helped a lot. So, yeah. uh, so I have to say, it's kind of a tough call here. Yeah. I think, you know, it's sort of the old thing of one for love, one for money, you know? Mm. Um, I was just having breakfast the other day with D.B. Sweeney, the actor, and he was talking about, um, in fact, I have it right over there, Gardens of Stone, which was a movie that he made directed by Francis Ford Coppola mm. in like 1986 or something like that. And he was saying that for Francis Ford Coppola, that movie was like a money, you know, it was like he'd, he'd done, you know, Apocalypse Now and he was in debt up to his eyeballs or whatever. He wanted to do his vineyard and this was a way to make some money. Mm. So there's something to be said for that. But I would say, I'm sure Francis Ford Coppola went into it thinking, I'm going to do the best job I can. I'm going to bust my butt on this. But I know it's, you know, it's not The Godfather Part Two, you know. Yeah. So, but you're at the, at the absolute crux of resistance. It's always like that. There's a, sometimes it's a person of the opposite sex, you know, or of the same sex, if that's your thing, you know, that suddenly appears right at the moment when you know you've got to really bear down yeah. on some job. But why does that, why does that happen? I, I don't know. But resistance is really diabolical. If you can stay the course and hang in there, you know, I take my hat off. Because you know? <laughs> it's, I know, it's so hard. The, the thing that, we really feel is in our soul is almost always non-remunerative, yeah. right? There's no payday at the end of it, or at least there may be. We hope there'll be something. Yeah. But and also, it's hard. It's a lonely thing. Your friends think you're crazy. The people closest to you think you're crazy. You know, uh, and it, it's but that's the way it always is. You know, it's always hard that way. And is there? Does it get? I guess the question is. And I, I guess I somewhat know the answer, but does it get easier? Because it's it, no, it, it does not. <laughs> but, but there ain't because it, okay, I I knew that was the answer. <laughs> that said, I also it seems like there are somehow um, giant leaps forward. Not, not to say that the resistance yes. doesn't push you forward back, but you know you went you know and not not to this is by the way just my own deduction. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But it sounded like there were many aspects of resistance that found their way into your life that kept you from writing your first book. Oh, yes. Yes. And, but yet, since actually publishing... You're not wrong. No, I'm not wrong. <laughs> no, we may delve deeper, deeper into that. But, but, the, but from your first book now, to have put out over 20 is pretty significant, right? There's an exponential leap that, that, must, have, that must have gotten you there to be able to be more resilient, I, I would imagine, and quicker in your ability to pivot back into the the discipline to be able to to channel the muse. Is that correct? And if so, like anything that you can share that's replicable, you know, because I'm because I'm looking for the giant leap. Uh, you know, uh, I haven't even really thought about this, so this would be good when I'm answering this. I don't know what I'm going to say. Definitely for me. Um, when I wrote my first book at age whatever it was, 54 or something like that, having written lots of other stuff before, but it was like movies and bad bad movies, terrible movies I'll never tell you about, and, and <laughs> novels that I couldn't get published, you know. But there was, a mo there was a moment when that happened, when I did write, you know, that first book, where definitely I was a different person and the world was different. And I don't know really what really what that was, but um, definitely... Um, I was able to just keep going after that. 
So, but I'm not sure what that, I don't know what that great leap was, but it, it was something. And although resistance never goes away, yeah. and it still was very strong on every project after that, and still is now, I'm still fighting it, but because I had beaten it, I knew I could beat it again, yeah. you know? It's just, it was just a matter of sitting down every day and doing the work, you know? It was nothing mysterious. It was just a matter of doing that. So, and also, I think, this is another kind of sidebar thing. Yeah. Before I had sort of turned that corner, life was so fucking painful. Mm-hmm. And the struggle was so bad that the struggle meaning giving in to resistance, giving in and going down the rabbit hole and, you know, that sort of thing that I was, I just had been scared straight by that. And each time I thought, am I going to go back to that? You know, I said, no, I'm not going to go back to that. Um, in fact, there was a thing on, on inside the NFL. I don't know if you ever watched yeah, sure. that, but you know, Michael Irvin was on there, you know, the playmaker yeah. from Dallas Cowboys. And uh, they were talking about, as a wide receiver, going over the middle. Right, where you know you're going to get hammered, right? And a lot of wide receivers like to do the deep routes or like to do out routes, but nobody wants to go over the middle. And so, but Michael Irvin did, you know? And they were asking him, well, where did you get the courage to do that? And he said, I was just starting to think about the ghetto. Do I want to go back to the ghetto or do I want to go over the middle? And he said, I'm going over the middle. So that, you know, that there was an aspect of that of like, it was so bad and so painful not doing it that now um, I'm going to do it. And, and and also, which you mentioned, I think the we forgot to unplug that one telephone. I hope that doesn't. No, happen. it's no problem at all. For for those of you listening, someone's calling. <laughs> um, so no, the 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 idea for me, it's almost like the equivalent of like the the, the four minute mile, like. Like yeah. it, until that was exactly. actually broken, yeah, people never thought it was exactly. possible. But once it's actually broken, it kind of like there is a switch in your mind to know that it's actually feasible, such that you can still get yeah. caught in your bullshit. But at least you know now, which you may not have known previously, that you can actually. Yeah, do. that's exactly it. It's a great analogy. Yeah. yeah. So there's a piece that I that I've been really, which is which is related. Which is this notion, as you were talking, I was also thinking a little bit about, you know, the, the, the archetype, which you, which you dance a lot with. And, and, and for me, you know, I was thinking about a story almost everyone listening will know, which is Star Wars, which is, you know, which was Lucas used, you know, the Joseph Campbellian kind of hero's journey. And all of us are familiar with this notion of sort of the dark side and, and the force, as, as, uh, as, as, he talk, as they talk about in Star Wars. And this notion, if you will, of the hero's journey, which oftentimes is also in confrontation of the dark side and about channeling more deeply into the force or those inner gifts. One of the things that I love about your work is you also distinguish between the hero's journey and the artist's journey and and various phases in life. And I personally found that distinction extraordinarily helpful. Uh, Can you share for the benefit of those listening? Because we didn't talk about this a ton in our last conversation. How do you define the artist's journey? Uh, and I want to ask you, Michael, how that affects your your journey. Yeah. Um, a little bit. Of, it's a little bit like what we were just talking about when I said I kind of turned the corner when I wrote my first first book. Yeah. That after that. After that was, prior to that was sort of my hero's journey, where I'm thrashing around, I'm struggling, I haven't really found it, you know, and I haven't really found my gift, I don't really know where, what I'm doing, and then 
when you you know in the hero's journey when Odysseus or whoever it is Dorothy goes back to Kansas Odysseus comes back to Ithaca they come back home mm. right and they come back as a changed person and they usually come with a gift for the people that's the that's the phrase right and I think at that point to me the hero's journey is over and the artist's journey begins and what, how I would define the artist's journey is is you're you're no longer fucking around out there. You know you you've gotten past the distractions. You know you've got a gift, but now you don't know what it is. You, and so now you're on this journey to become an artist. You know, and you're asking yourself, first of all, what is my gift? What is my unique thing that I can offer? What point of view do I have if I'm a comedian? What vein do I mine for that? If I'm a dancer, if I'm a singer, what is it? And then the other half of that is your you're um, training your instrument, meaning you know your body, your mind, um, your your financial situation, your family situation, so that you can deliver your gift. You know, so that you're not uh, you, you know if you're drinking, you stop drinking. You know, if you're um, financially unstable, you find a way to get stable so that you can do your work and. That's why I've been able to do, you know, it took me 50 whatever years to write one book, and it's taken me whatever, you know, how many years to write another 20. So it came really like that because now I'm on this journey uh, to, to, you know, I'm on a mission is what I say. It's like the Blues Brothers, you know? Yeah. You, you're, now it's, you, you're no longer going to mess around. You don't have time to um, have crazy love affairs or be drunk or be involved in drugs or, or put drama in your life that's going to distract you. It's like, you've done enough of that shit, you know? That's a wasted years. So that is the idea in, in my mind between the hero's journey comes first and the artist's journey comes after that. And what does the artist's journey look like? Like if you were to... It's really boring. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's not the answer I was anticipating. <laughs> well, it, but it is. From the outside, yeah. it looks tremendously boring. It's like my life, you know, I get up, I go to the gym, I go to breakfast, I come home, I work, you know, I watch TV, I go to sleep, you know. I hang out with Diana, who's outside. Um, but uh, inside, it is exciting because I'm working on stuff and, and you know, bringing forth works that I hope are are good, you know. Yeah. So um, uh, that was was that the question? What that, that was? What yeah. The what does the artist journey look like? Because I think what does Stevie Wonder do? I'm sure that he gets up and goes and you know he goes to his studio. He's got his piano. You know, he sits down and he does his thing. You know, he's uh, he's not jumping out of airplanes. He's not doing anything like that. And I think that's probably true. Twyla Tharp. You know, what does Quentin Tarantino do? I'm sure he sits down. He does research. He he, you know, writes and writes and shoots movies, you know? That's it's, his life. It's, it's that, I feel like the distinction, uh, again, for those who, who may not know, because you wrote another book, uh, Turning Pro, to me it's also, it seems like there's a core, total correspondence for this notion of turning pro and then that, that artist journey. And, and for me, I almost see it also as like a first half and second and that half is maybe yeah. wrong, but chapter no, five. I think you're right. Because I was, you know, it's a, to make it a little bit personal, I was, I, this is something I was thinking about since our last conversation because as I had spoken with you, you know, about a year ago, my father passed and I had the, you know, actually in some ways tremendous opportunity to be by his side. You know, it was the beginning of the, the pandemic and I had been very, very careful. I flew in and I spent that week 
um, holding his hand. And we were very grateful because he was able to pass in, in the home, which he had built over 40 years of his life. Mm -hmm. And he and my mother had been together for 50 years. But as, as I was confronting existentially, you know, the, the passing of, of the man I love most on the planet, it occurred to me that over the last 40 years, he had built this home and he had in that home had me, had my mm -hmm. sister. Mm -hmm. And I realized that God willing, uh, I live, you know, another 40 plus years. I'm kind of in that point that he was at the beginning mm -hmm. of that chapter of his life. And he also had a very circuitous, you know, path uh -huh. and, you know, was in Costa Rica trying to start a tennis club and then realized he's got yeah. bad partners and pulled everyone out. You know, he did all these, he ever worked at a cigar shop in San Francisco. He had all these different iterations, but somehow something crystallized. And then, and I'm not saying he figured it all out, but I can say that from, from my view, he, he had a hero's journey and then he stepped into his artist phase. Uh -huh. And at least in what he attributed it to... I think the sense of responsibility he felt for me and my sister uh, yeah. uh -huh. was the requisite kick, kick in the ass because he was literally a genius, but he always kind of, you know, uh -huh. he would get away, you know, he got kicked out of, of, uh -huh. of Michigan for playing bridge and, you know, he was too smart for his own good too, you know, like to, uh -huh. and then when we had, he had us, he kind of tapped in, you know, and he, and he, he stepped into a different level of himself. And so to me, one of the things that I'm kind of reckoning with, to go back to your initial thing of like what you would ask me, is I kind of feel like I'm in a liminal space. Uh, I, I, bet you I feel yeah. very much, I don't necessarily feel like I'm in the hero's journey, but I don't necessarily feel like I'm on the artist's journey. So I feel like I'm at, in a way, an impasse. And uh, I've been seeking, you know, internal wisdom as well as guidance from, uh -huh. and, and I'm very grateful for the uh -huh. platform to give me, give me, give me exposure to people and incredible uh, teachers like yourself. But I feel like, and I think a lot of people out there can per perhaps relate to that, not knowing exactly where they are, right? Like they know where they, do they don't necessarily want to be. And, and that may actually very well uh -huh. be where they are. I mean, I think with the uh -huh. pandemic, for example, gave a lot of a, a lot of a, a lot of us a lot of time to sit with ourselves, yeah, yeah. comfortably or uncomfortably so, and really reckon on where we are. And if I'm honest, to you know, I feel like I'm I'm in between. I'm 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 in that liminal, uncomfortable, messy middle. And I think there's an excitement to that, but I also think that there's a, there's a. Uh, for lack of a better term, a darkness to it. It's it's almost like the darkness before the, the dawn. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, what's when, when does that next mm -hmm. phase kick in? Is there some? Is that something in, in in your experience or your? Do you have any insights that you might be able to share for those who feel like they're they're not quite in either place on how to to truly step into that to turn pro to step to, to step into that 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 artist journey. Um, and is it just showing up at the desk or are there mindsets uh, that that one should keep in mind when stepping more fully into that embodied aspect? You know, I think there's a, a lot of pressure put on people today, particularly young people put today, to f kind of find their calling, you mm -hmm. know, and I'm probably guilty of putting some of that out there myself, you know, um, and, and I don't think that's very helpful, that pressure, you know. Uh, the other thing I think is there's sort of a, a fantasy that there's like one moment, right, when everything, you know, changes, right? But I think it's really much more a series of moments 
over a period of years, you know, that maybe build to that sort of moment. Like for me, talk about turning pro, like for the say that 10 or 15 years before I published my first novel, I was a pro. I was working in the movie business. I was doing other kind of things. I had, I had, I had done that, you know, in terms of, you know, I got up every morning. I did, but I wasn't, I, I hadn't really found my real voice yet. You know, I was writing, I was trying other people's voices, I was learning. So I'm in that, I was in that liminal space for a long time. You know, and, and before that, I was in a leather liminal space for a long time. Um, so if I were to say anything to you or to anything, and, and it feels weird for me to be like a voice of wisdom, I don't even feel like that at all, you know? But it is, that, that time that you're in is a good time, you know? I, I envy you, you know? Enjoy it, you know? Really be, and, and don't put pressure on yourself to, you know, it, I mean, I can see what you're doing here. People, I don't know if people can see all the stuff, all the gear that's around, and, you know, you're, you're, you're doing your thing here, Michael, you know, so don't, uh, uh, you don't put pressure on yourself that way, I don't think, you know? Yeah, I think it's an interesting, it's an, it is an interesting thing that in our society, I feel like there is, uh, there's perhaps a fallacy of arrival. You know, yeah, and that's I a think, great phrase. You know, I think there's a, you know, there's a foul, like it's like it's like if only you have this, then you'll be. It's actually, I think, one of the fundamental fallacies in our culture, right? It's like this notion that if only we have something, then we'll finally be something, yeah, right? Like yeah. if only if I have this wife yeah. or girlfriend or partner, if only if I have this car, this job, this butt, yeah. then I'll finally be happy. When actually, it seems to me, and it's it seems like it's actually the opposite. It's actually who we're being. And in some ways, the the if if you will, the artist's journey in our beingness that eventuates the things that show up yeah. in the havingness aspect. But yet, that seems like it's always a, an evolving process. Like there's never like a I arrived. Yeah. Oh. The other thing is, uh, um, uh, I forgot what I was going to say, but um, I think. We never really, you never really get there, at least in my experience. I mean, it's always another challenge. It's always another thing that, 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 you know, Philip Roth once said, you know, they were asking him after however many books he wrote that were all wonderful books, you know, he said, do you ever figure it out? Do you really know what you're doing? And he said, absolutely not. He said, because every book is a new problem. It's a new, you know, that you have to solve. It's a different thing that never you never were dealing with before, and and so it, it's always fresh and it's always new. Um, but um, you're you're right about this pressure in our culture to have arrived, you know, and it's it's bullshit, you know, and it's very negative, you know, and Instagram and you know, I mean, I love Instagram, I love, but you know how everybody puts their all of the girls are all beautiful and the guys are all in Costa Rica, you know, doing whatever they're doing, you know? <laughs> yes. and in fact they're not really doing that at all, you know, um, or if they are, it's not, you know, it's a constructive highlight reel, yeah, reality. it is yeah, exactly what sure. it is. So. Um, yeah, it's not. It's, it's a it, struggle. That's all it is. It's a struggle, and but what I would say, what, the, I feel like it is a struggle. And what's interesting is now the false realities, right? The false constructive realities are becoming the things that, unfortunately, people are measuring their real realities against. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And so that, and and what's interesting is that then, at least for me, again, because I like to speak for my for my, <laughs> uh, that then ultimately winds up 
ironically also becoming that aspect of resistance, right? Because absolutely the discipline of resistance. It yeah. does. And the discipline of pursuit becomes harder when you're living in the projected reality, which by the way is a total fallacy anyway, but like the projected constructed realities of, of, of everyone else. And so I feel it's it's challenging, but I feel like the, the, the trick is how do you suck quiet all that noise and find the signal within yourself, you know? And, and uh, that to me is the journey. What do, you, what do you do? Do you have disciplines? Do you, you were telling, you know, before we started, you kind of centered yourself. Yeah. And we were talking about alignment and stuff like that. What, what, are your, what are your processes, Michael? Well, I think for me, you know, and, and by the way, full transparency, I'd love to pretend like I show up and do all of these every day, and that's not the case. But when I'm good, I feel like the day I feel like I win the day when I when I wake up ideally with the sun you know I mean to me to, I mean that I won't, I won't go too deep down this road but I think, <laughs> I think I think catching the sun being in nature like those who are who are listening you you don't you you don't know exactly where we are but we're in Malibu California we're by the ocean there's sunshine there's trees to me that is my ultimate path to center if I get lost, if I get lost in the noise of this world, the fastest way for me to come back to true signal is to head into nature, to go uh-huh. on, to go on a hike. So the short answer to that is is nature. But you know, for me, it's ideally stepping back into, to be honest, the circadian rhythms, if you will, like almost. You know, I don't know if you read Sebastian Younger's Tribes or you know, Sap- United Sapiens, Sapiens, but it's these this interesting aspect to me, which I think. I'm fascinated by, but this idea that like, you know, we, our biology has evolved, you know, over, you know, whatever these tens of thousands of years in a certain context, right? A tribal context, Uh a context, you know, I had, and I had the virtue of this in going to Sri Lanka and studying, you know, in a place that had no word for privacy and had no word for possession. Uh There was no, so it wasn't you and I, it was, we were inextricably linked. Uh And the, and seeing the, that I I would say also to bring it back to your question, the, all all the other pieces is community and connection. For me also, when I get too lost in my existential angst, which Uh is sort of where we were were talking about Uh earlier, is the fastest way for me is to go back into nature and, and, and get back into that sense of perspective, right? Looking up at the stars, if I'm in a place where I can actually see the stars, you know, and ra- realizing that, that that light that I'm seeing right now probably took off before I was born uh-huh. and it'll be going for a lot, lot longer uh-huh. than I lasted. But I think any of those things that bring perspective to me, I feel like, and, and, and in the simplest sense, the other piece is breath, but those are the things that uh-huh. bring me back to center. Uh-huh. What about you? To me, it's it's a it's about the work, mm-hmm. you know. It it didn't it wasn't always, but it really it really is. Um, so that a lot of uh, my day is just sort of getting ready for the moment when I go into that office over there and try to 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 move to roll the pee, you know, another you know three or four inches across the table, you know, um, and. Uh, you know, everything is for me is sort of preparation for that or recovery from that. Mm-hmm. That's kind of my nature. You know, I'm not much of a nature guy. You know, yeah. you can't get me out into. But um, uh, so, so that's that's where it is for me. And it's always um, arduous. It's always adversity. It's always hard. You're always lost. You know, you're you're you're. Um, you know, like uh, thrashing through the, a wet jungle. You know, you're doing that kind of thing. Um, but by the end of the day, if I've, 
Lord, I don't even try to judge what I've done. By the end of the day, I've, I'm calm. You know, I would not be calm if I didn't do it. You know, and that's one of the things I have learned, that that's my drug as far as centering me for the day, one day at a time, which I absolutely believe, even though I'm not in AA. Um, so that, that's, that's it for me. And it didn't used to be like that, but it is now. The one day at a time, I think, is, is maybe one of the most valuable distinctions ever. I know it sounds so simple, but yeah. one of the things I've realized is that I would even I, I even take it down sometimes when I feel overwhelmed, and I don't know how you feel like when you're when you're trying to move that P across the desk. And I'd be really curious to hear because it sounds like that's your crucible, that's your that, that's your warrior stepping onto the battlefield. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and so I'd be interested to hear what what sets you up to step into that place. Like, do you have a do you have anything that like is your mindset as it relates to like you know this doesn't have to be like a morning routine or whatever but like is there something that you do to get yourself ready or is it literally just putting the boots on you know putting on the timberlands and literally step into the desk uh it, it is although i do do things to get myself ready mm. you know i do go to the gym i do so but it's not like i'm focusing my mind or anything I'm, yeah. I'm definitely a believer of uh when you sit down at the page starting right that second and not allowing yourself to start any sort of self-censoring or any sort of uh, second-guessing of yourself. Um, and I must say that, uh, like we were talking about the muse before, a lot of times the muse is not there, you know? Uh, or if she is, she's waiting and waiting patiently, you know? So a lot of what, um, the, what it feels like to me is incompletion and not really satisfactory, uh, you know, um, a, a struggle to, to that. But the thing that you do have going for you, at least in a long-form project, is time, right? You figure, okay, today I didn't get it. You know, I really didn't get it yesterday. I really didn't get it the day before. But over a year, I'm going to have something, you know? And I can't see it now, but two months from now, maybe I will be able to see it if I just kind of keep believing and keep going. So it's that it's it's just for for whatever what an ever what an ever analogy kind of takes place. There's a guy I interviewed named Boyd Vardy. He was a lion tracker. He talked about that in the firm. Just <laughs> finding your next first track, right? Like uh, not getting lost in the. Oh, well, that's great! You I know, I've got to right. I've got to find the lion tomorrow. Uh -huh. you know? But no, just focus on the first track, you know, or the next page, or like you said earlier, that you know, one day at a time. I feel like the people I know that I a lot of times have the greatest respect for. What I've realized is they segment things down. You know, they get overwhelmed by the vast and hugeness. And, yeah. and it's that combination of, I think, discipline and faith. You know, it's like yes. they discipline, they just show up. Don't know if this is actually going to take them there, but it's not, but, but actually focusing on the there-ness is what takes many people off course in the first place. So it's actually the, the disciplined pursuit of just whatever that next thing is that oftentimes takes us to where we need to be yeah. I mean, a lot of times for me, for whatever this is worth, um, I think about like, imagine Columbus mm. or any of those explorers when they first set off into the ocean, right? Mm. Day after day, it's just water, right? They don't know that the world really is round or that the Indies really are there. How did they do that, you know? And, but I think that's a real skill that anyone that's in any long-term project really needs. It's 
to be comfortable in a place that's uncomfortable. Mm. Um, what is it? There's Keats had something he called it the negative capability. Um, you can actually Google it. So I wish I had it here in front of me. But it was, it was a letter that he wrote to his brother. And it was something about um, being able to be in that place that's really insecure yeah. and you really don't know where you're going and not be afraid, you know, and have faith to keep going that something will reveal itself, like the lion tracker, you know. At least he's got a track or two, but before he finds the track, right, you know, what is that like? Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of people, that's when resistance will really get you because a lot of people will say, well, shit, you know, what time is it? Let's get back to the, you know, have a little anomaly or something, you know. Um, so that's, I think that's a great skill that that entrepreneurs learn and everybody learns, I think, that's going to get somewhere is to be able to hang in there when you're not getting any any real feedback, you know, and you're when there's a lot of doubt, a lot of self-doubt. Yeah. What do you do when you... Say, say you're on that path and you're in that uncomfortable middle, right? You're in the, and, and ideally it sounds like from what I'm listening, you're, you're, you almost want to live there. You want to be pursuing that discomfort with vigor in a way. But what, There's a lot of truth to that, I think. It's very painful, but it's true. Well, they say, which I think is 100% true, I mean, and biologically true oftentimes, you know, muscle building, right? It's the, it, it, it's the, you know, Basically, our strength happens, you know, in that yeah. discomfort zone. Our, you know, it's it's it, we growth literally happens in that place, right? Yeah. And if we're not striving for it, then we, yeah. you know, we are slowly fading away. I mean, that's the definition of the hero's journey, right? The hero's journey. The hero is lost, right? The hero is going from one beating to another. You know? Yes. And you were talking before, Michael, about a liminal space, right? You feel like you're in sort of betwixt and between, and and yet you would sort of point to me and think, oh well, he's Turn the corner, he's on his artist. But when I'm sitting there working, I'm in that liminal space too, mm. you know, every day. Because wow. I don't know where where I'm going, you know. I'm, and I just have faith that at some point it'll reveal itself to me, you know. And I will say this, usually it does. Does it reveal itself also more frequently because of your disciplined pursuit? By that I mean like if you... Do you think that showing up in that same place every day, kind of like bringing it to where you're saying, like the muse kind of checking you out every day, do you think that has an exponential return just by virtue of being in the disciplined pursuit as opposed to waiting kind of, or like waiting, you know, uh, you know, waiting for the inspiration to strike? Um, I'm not sure we're, we have the same definition for exponential. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's like getting better, 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 mm. but it is incremental. Mm. You know, yes, definitely, that um, you do know when you work every day that on the same project, right, you're focusing, you're focusing, you're bringing that energy every day to the same project, that um, it's like putting money in the bank. Mm. You know, at some point, it's going to pay off, you know, mm. um, and, and that's kind of the faith yes. that you have to have, you know, but, and but put I, it in I think day. it is true. It is true. It is true, I think. Yeah. So, okay. So if you do show up in that regard 
and you do embrace discomfort. I feel like this is in many ways a warrior's the war a warrior ethos. At least as I think about training, as you yes, were talking, it is. It is. I was ev evoked into the disciplines of the samurai and like yeah. that pursuit of perfection in every moment. And like, but it's a discipline. You know, what what have you learned? Because I know you've done a great many books also about these warrior cultures. Let me interrupt and change the subject a little. Okay, bit. yeah, please. Another way to look at this. Uh, because I, sometimes I, I don't want to get too much into the male warrior thing, is a mother. Mm. A mother's, the virtues of a mother are exactly like the virtues of, of a warrior. Mm. If you think about it, that's an equally good analogy to make as an entrepreneur or as a writer or an artist or whatever. Because if you think about a mother, a mother is has new life inside her, mm. right? It's bringing new life forth. And a mother sacrifices willingly, very willingly, her ego. She is at the service of this new life, right? Mm -hmm. And once that life is born, a mother will kill to protect that new life, right? She'll lift a Buick off of her baby, you know, if there's something like a She'll run into a burning building. So those are beyond kind of warrior virtues. And a mother also works every day, you know? The baby is pooping itself all again and again, you know, or is now a teenager and is amazing pain in the ass, you know, but that, that sort of day-to-day -day showing up. And maybe someday your daughter graduates from Harvard and she looks beautiful and you say, oh, okay, it was worth it, you know? Wow. Now that's a powerful analogy. Yeah, I, I, that makes sense. I feel like it's sort of, it's, it's almost the cessation of ego in a way. I mean, not that a mother doesn't still have ego, but it's definitely subjugated by the higher priority of this life, which is, yeah. which is in some ways you're just in service to, it's more, it, more important than you. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. it doesn't, but it's not, it's not a sexy task. In fact, it requires It's really unsexy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Discomfort, likely in many moments of many days, yet there's a commitment to a higher virtue, something, something higher yeah. than yourself. Yeah. So do you see, as a mother would see a child, do you see the creative, the, 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 the creative consequence, yes. if you will, as the child? Yes. And very definitely, um, your job is to bring them forth, mm. you know, and you're at their service. Mm. Very, I very definitely feel that. Um, you know, I was just thinking about the, you remember Kurt Warner, the, who was the, played, uh, quarterback for the Rams and for, yeah. I think for the Chiefs, was he for the, did he, what was his next team? Anyway, the, the, the sort of uh, myth about Kurt Warner, I'm sure it was true, was that he was out of football and basically he was, um, they said he was working at a grocery store, he's bagging groceries, you know, and then he got called, next thing you know, he's in the Hall of Fame, he's won the Super Bowl. But I would love to see a documentary, if we had such a thing, of him when he was at the grocery store. You know, because first of all, I know he was not really working at a grocery store. I'm sure that Kurt Warner was, he probably did work at some point at the grocery store, but I'm sure he went down to the high school field. He had recruited guys who were wide receivers from the local college or the thing, and he would throw, and he would train, and he would run, and he was like, in other words, I'm talking about the absolute unglamorous, hardcore, nobody sees it, nobody knows what it's like. Um, and, and finally, it's finally revealed when he's finally on the field, right? Somebody gives him a chance and somebody lets him do it. But, but what it's really about to me 
is that time when he's alone, just his wife standing by him, you know, or maybe his, his father, well, who knows what. But when there's no glamour, nobody sees it, you know, that to me is, uh, um, it's never on Instagram. He's not showing any photos <laughs> of that on Instagram, not. right? Yeah. But we only see him winning the Super Bowl, right? We go, oh, wow, how did he win the Super Bowl? Well, it was because he was there at, you know, 20 below zero, throwing the ball to high school running backs and wide receivers. The, to me, it's kind of synonymous with this, the, that notion of integrity, right? Like, how do you show up when no one's when no one's watching? Yeah, yeah. And 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 what what you're describing is we we we're such a culture obsessed with results, but also this highlight reel orientation, yeah. if you will. But the true juice, the true the true essence of it is in that the mother changing the diaper or Kurt Warner yeah. at, at the grocery store bag and the groceries. Yeah. The, the stuff that no one's watching, it's not on anyone's highlight reel, no Instagram story is recorded of it, but it's it's the true training ground for the gift that leads to the Harvard graduation yeah. or leads to that yeah. Super Bowl because that it's the moments in the day is stacked of, of that work, that essence, yeah. that dedication that leads to the to yeah. the, the creative the creative fruit. And if you think about the mindset that Kurt Warner must have had and his wife, because I know they were like like this and still are, I hope. Um, he had to really believe in himself when nobody was, I think he went to Iowa or Iowa state or something like that. That was his, you know, it was like, you know, okay, it's not USC, you know, it's not Notre Dame, but somehow each day he had to believe, you know, he said, God damn it. You know, I'm better than these guys, you know, or I, I deserve, I belong at that level, right? I can be at that level. And and I'm sure that his wife absolutely believed in him and was like the driving force in this thing. And, you know, that's, that's an amazing thing when that, when that happens. It but is. we all have to do that. That's our, you know, you've got to do it too when you're going on, on the book and finishing the book and whatever it is that you're going to do, you know, you, that, that you know you deserve to be in that league. I'm actually going to take out my closet. I have a Tom Waddle jersey in my closet. Now, I bring this up because you talked about going over the middle and you used the Kurt Warner. Uh, Tom Waddle, so I grew up going with my dad to the Chicago Bears games. Uh And we would wear our Timberland boots Uh and we'd bring our newspaper and we'd stash our peanuts in our coats and we'd throw the newspaper on the ground because it was so cold that uh, that you know you couldn't even with Timberland uh, stand it. And we'd sit in Soldier Field as his father had taken him to the Uh game. And, and my favorite player that, that I grew up watching is a guy named Tom Waddle. And I feel like you would love Tom Waddle. Uh, I've never heard of Tom Waddle. This is all new to me. Yeah, well, then the beauty is because Tom Waddle was, it never had also the victory or the herald. And he, he never even achieved the Instagram success. But what I think you'll appreciate about Tom is, to me, he actually, what you just re-evoked one of my childhood hero, heroes that I haven't thought about for quite some time. So Tom Waddle was drafted at the same time, well, he wasn't even drafted, excuse me, pardon me. He was cut from the team three times. He he wasn't drafted. But at the same time he joined the team, a gentleman was drafted by the name of Alonzo Spellman. Now, Alonzo Spellman was the paradigmatic football player. He had all the natural gifts. Zero percent body fat, ran the 40 yard in probably Uh two seconds. Uh Tom Waddle had no natural skills, no natural talent. He was probably, he was listed 195 pounds, so he was 160 pounds. He had actually the record for smelling salts used in the game. (laughs) 
Now he was not, he was cut three times from the team, but Alonzo Spellman had all the natural gifts, top draft pick, didn't never amounted to, to, to much, basically. Uh -huh. Flushed out of the league. Tom Waddle cut three times, shows up, and leads the Bears in, 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 in ostensibly moral leadership. He was like the Rudy figure. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, he, and he, it wasn't like he'll ever actually know about him. He's never going to be in the Hall of Fame, never won a Super Bowl. But what I loved about him was he had that disciplined pursuit of showing up when no one was watching, not only showing when no one was watching, but but when no one believed it was even possible, literally cut three times, came back, and the the thing that Tom Wano was known for is he would take every hit, ah, and, he ah. would, and he would hold on to the ball. Ah. So you, you knew he was going to get hit, he probably would get knocked out, but he would make it the catch, and he would hold ah. on to the ball. And so to me, what you just evoked is that notion of like, of that tenacity of pursuit and, and especially, and I think that, and maybe that's the, hopefully for those listening, but for me at this moment of like, when do you just keep holding on to the ball and showing up to the field, even, even, and especially when things look challenging or like, you know, you're not going to make yeah, that, make yeah. that, make that squad. But it, it, it brought up for me that notion of, 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 Tenacity, and that uh, I think what you're what you're reminding me of, which I'm so grateful for, and hopefully it's valuable for those listening, is that notion of, you know, what do you do when no one's looking, and how is that an exemplification of the character and the integrity you want to exemplify? And ideally, if if there's if that's matched with the gift of who you are, your unique music, if you will, that music that comes uh -huh. from the muse, uh -huh. then I feel like you're kind of getting somewhere. Yeah, and by kind of getting yeah. somewhere, I feel yeah. like that's yeah. hopefully, hopefully, hopefully the pursuit. But what, what do you? Is there is there anything ha having 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 garnered and not not trying to put you in this pedestal of figured it all out, but having done that work and having the the disciplined practice of showing up every day imperfectly. Is there is there one great challenge that you still have yet to 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 take on? that you're, 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 you're looking at now that you think that, that perhaps prior to doing the reps that you've done in these 20 books, et cetera, you would not have even kind of considered, but, but you're now thinking, okay, you know, that, that, uh, that may be, that may be, that, that may be something I'm, I'm going to disappoint you here, Michael, and say no. Okay. No, because I really feel like, um, um, each, I'm certainly going to be writing for the rest of my life. That's going to be one thing. I don't see any. I'm, I'm not. I don't see anything beyond that. You know, um, it's not like I want to direct a movie or I want to run for office or anything like that. But each, each um, new dream, each new book, each new whatever it may be, is a, a, like Philip Roth said. It's a whole new challenge. And I'm, I do believe in the muse. I believe the muse gives you that assignment. You know, here's the next one, and here's the next one. And how do you know when it's a true assignment? Like you just feel it. You know. Mm -hmm. Although I will say, to take the opposite side of that, the thing I've been working on now for like the last nine months or a year is, I don't know if I feel it or not. You know? <laughs> um, usually I do feel it. And I'm starting to feel it. It's really Diana's kind of. She's the one who's sort of been pushing me to do this one particular project. Mm. Um, but um, uh, so I know it's not like I have some 
great dream out there that I haven't, that I'm building up to do or anything like that. In many, in many ways, I'm getting old enough that I'm wondering, you know, how am I going to be, am I like the Rolling Stones where, you know, I'm, never, I'm not going to do another satisfaction ever again. Um, but, I, I, but it doesn't seem to be working that way because it does seem to me like each thing is, is, a, is a challenge and another mountain to climb. So I'm just, all I want to do is keep doing that. Yeah, so it sounds like it's not even this grand, this grand mountain. It's more just showing up and, and working the hills yeah. every day. And th there may be a great mountain. It yeah. may come up, you know, the next two, three from now. I don't know. I'll just, you know, when it comes, it comes. Show up one day at a time. Yeah. You yeah. mentioned that. I feel like that, that's an interesting piece because I feel like what we haven't talked about, and I'd be interested in your perspective on because I mentioned community earlier. And it's something I think about because we are a very individual-oriented culture. But, you know, um, and I think we exalt the individual. But I think, you know, having been in cultures of, that's, that's more community-oriented or thinking even about a partner and the virtue of a partner. A friend of mine once said to me, it's not a coincidence that there's no single presence. And I think what he meant by that is, you know, that the first, you know, lady or soon, hopefully one day, the first man, you know, uh, you know, that they that actually the, that 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 partnership enables both to level up and, and enables the man to sort of step into that aspect of himself that is, in this case, presidential, was, as, as he was referring uh -huh. it to me. But that actually you need a good, you know, you, you need sometimes the other person to actually help you elevate. Have you had do you have any insights or have you had that experience of around how beyond the crucible of the individual's pursuit of, of, of that, you know, you know, showing up to do the work and doing the job. How do you see the role of other people or partnership in that, in that process? Because sometimes it feels like a very lonely pursuit. Um, I think it is a lonely pursuit and I'm probably not going to give you the answer. You're open. To no, no, not at all. But I'm some, curious. Uh, I think that, um, we we sometimes travel through this life with uh, like with other airplanes you know mm -hmm. that are kind of going along beside us but and and they support us and we support them and we look to them and it, and it, it helps us you know and that can you can have uh, you know a spouse or somebody that's the airplane flying right beside you like that but ultimately we're in a cockpit all by ourselves you know mm -hmm. and and with our muse whoever whoever that is whatever that is, but I, I, uh, um, I'm not a great believer in community, hmm. you know, um, I, I hear it talked about all the time, you know, and, um, but, uh, in fact, I might even take the opposite tack hmm. and say that, uh, many times in my life, people that I thought were close to me were, uh, were close to me, um, were not helpful at all. Mm. And I had to, I had to, you know, find some accommodation to be able to keep doing my stuff. Talk about resistance mm. um, and sabotage. A lot of times, the people closest to us are sabotaging us. You know, they don't want us to to become whatever it is we want, we want to be. They think we're crazy. They think we're we're arrogant. They think whatever. You know. So I'm, I don't mean to give too much of a dark side. No, actually, I, I, but I think this, you know, I'm a big fan of David O. Russell, a filmmaker, you know, who did uh, Silver Linings Playbook and Joy and The Fighter. Mm. And he, this is his subject, you know, sabotage by other people, particularly the people closest to us. 
Um, he's coming at it from a point of view of, of love, where usually the family does come together in the end, mm -hmm. and they get by the thing. But a lot of times, um, one people are at loggerheads and are and are the one person that's trying to 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 follow their dream is being dragged down by everybody else, and and he really gets into that in his stories. They're really really uh, terrific. I think Joy the Fighter and um, Silver Linings Playbook. How do you take? How do you? How do you handle people that are sabotaging? I mean, it, it, obviously, there's the internal resistance, but then I never do it very well. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because sometimes those people are family. You know, sometimes those yeah. are people you can't. I talk. I'm talking in my book about this notion of batteries and black holes. So, so I think we talk. Uh, we talk relationally about givers uh -huh. and takers, right? Like some people are givers, some yeah. people are takers. Yeah. But I actually think, in some ways, it's an inadequate distinction because. I can be a giver and still yeah. be an energetic black hole. Yeah. So what you're talking to me about is, is right in what I'm thinking about, which is who are the people that, that suck, suck your energy, basically sabotage your, 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 sabotage you, you know? And, and how do you honestly cut that energy out or distance yourself from it and be more around people who are batteries? Yeah. Know? And I, mean, I, I the, I'm curious. We, I mean, everybody has their own resistance mm. and, um, if someone is succumbing to their own resistance and you are with them or you're part of their orbit and you are not, you are going forward, then your going forward is a reproach to them, right? Because mm -hmm. they say, if Michael's doing it, why am not I why I'm why am I not doing it? And if mostly this is unconscious, mm -hmm. I think. And so that person will try to somehow stop you from doing whatever it is you're doing. And in my, and it's very hard from both sides. You know, I've been on both sides myself. You know, I've been a bad person as pulling, pulling people down too. Um, and I find when you're, when somebody's pulling you down, a lot of times it's very hard to, to admit that because you give them the benefit of the doubt so much. And a lot of times you love them, you know, and you say, I can't believe it. You know, somebody else might say to you, can't you see this person is really dragging you down? You go, no, 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 they're not. You know, you make excuses for them. Um, but sometimes you just do have to face it, you know. Uh, and then, you know, usually you have to part ways, you know. Um, and that's real. That's really painful. You know, that's a, uh, for both people. You know, you feel, if you're the one that's leaving, you feel guilty. If you're the one that's getting left, you feel fucked, you know. So anyway, well, I'm kind of rambling a little bit here, but I do think yeah. it's a real it's a real thing sabotaged by others. You know, you know, Diana, my girlfriend, is great, and that she's really uh, definitely on my side and you know in my corner. And you know, I have a hard time even relating to that because it's I'm not used to that. Um, but th and that's a rare thing, you know. And I just tell myself I sh I wish I was in her corner as much as she was in mine. Yeah. Yeah, those are those are rare folks indeed, but also I think some of the most valuable. Yeah, yeah. they make life worth living. Yeah. In addition, but I was, you know what you and I are doing right here, right now, I think is hundred percent positive. Mm. You know, you're helping me, and I'm helping you. I think I am. You are, and I think that you're helping me, and that's like wingmen. You know, or like those planes that are going along together, yeah. side by side. So, um, and we might not see each other for another year. You know. You go your way, I'll go my way. So 
but it's great. It's a moment, you know. It's uh, it's like what we were talking about about podcasting. Yeah. That a lot of times it's a great way for um, for people to come together, like minded people to come together. I'm not trying to sabotage you. You're not trying to sabotage me. We're we're both trying to go forward as best we can. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think I feel like that's what, at least in my vision, the relationships I like to to to, to build are built around. Right? It's like yeah. how can I. How can I step into this being an offering rather than being, uh, you know, like, hey, uh, yeah. you know, uh, which is, you know, and I'm sure you get asked this all, I would imagine, all the time, you know, but people hit you up, hey, can I pick your brain? You don't know what they want, you know, you know, and you don't want to, of course, you know, you want to be a nice person, but it's like, <laughs> I'm sure you get hit this all the time. It's like, oh, you know, like, it's, it, it, to me, it, it's very hard if, if you don't know what someone's intention is, and even if they have good intentions, it still can be a suck from what you're talking about, this yeah. disciplined pursuit of showing up for your yeah. own work and doing your own muse. And I think that's a piece I think all of us are trying to figure out, right? It's like, how do you, how do you, how do you navigate through this world? And I like that idea. Um, I like that idea of, of, of the wingman and you, I'm sort of bringing it full circle and I want to sort of, I'll, I'll move towards my, my sort of, you know, bringing this to a close. But, but one of the things that I, like about your sensibility is you definitely have a, as I would describe it, like sort of a, a it seems like an ethos that's somewhat informed by um, some of the, some of the blue collar jobs that you, as you described, as well as your military background. How do you, how do you sense that like, or do you feel like any of that was, uh, uh, you know, sort of a gauntlet if, for lack of a better term in, in terms of how you, how you approach like your, your, the way that you've kind of come up with the way you live the world or is it, you know, uh, I don't know if that's the right way to express it, but I feel like that aspect of just showing up and do, and, and find the way and, and, fi and finding the, finding the, finding the wingman that'll actually, like the, you're comfortable walking with. Cause I feel like that's a, at least what a vote for me as you were talking, this wingman, and I was thinking of planes, but I was just thinking of someone who's actually got your back because it's the opposite of the people that'll sabotage you. And to be honest, I've, I've had a hard time sometimes finding people that would, that authentically have my back. Yeah. And so I think we all do. <laughs> yeah. So it just made me think of like, I feel like the military say what you whatever you want, but I think that it, the reason I feel like so many people find a sense of purpose in it is because there's very few places where someone actually has your back to that degree. That's true. And you come back home, I can imagine, aside from the horrors of war, which I won't even touch on, but I can imagine, I don't know how it would be, how you come back and not have PTSD, because I can't imagine going from a place where you're confronting life or death next to a guy you know would do whatever it took to save your ass and you vice versa. And that level of consequence and that level of I've got your back and then I come back and try to get a job at Walmart. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same in sports too, in team sports, right? You see that professional athletes or college athletes, you know, they, that's what they miss most of all. Mm. It's just the, the feeling of the camaraderie, the buddies that you have, you know, the bond of the, of the people that you have. But again, in the end, you are alone in the cockpit, mm. I think. Mm. And at some point, although community is great and love is great and all is great, at some point you do have to sort of figure out how you're going to fly that plane by yourself and what the, what the plane is and what your mission is. Yeah. And what, what do you feel is the, aside from just, aside from showing up to do the work every day, are there any other insights you would share about that cockpit flight? 
Well, there's a lot, I guess, yeah. but uh, maybe we could take that for, for another, another time. Another time. We got a lot, a lot of other things we could talk about. For yeah. sure, and I'm happy to do it anytime. Um, but I, I do think, um, you know, oh, I don't know. I just was thinking about. Um, I just was writing this the other day when I was I was researching a book called The Lion's Gate about the, the uh, Six-Day War, the Israeli-Arab War of 1967. Mm. And I went over to Israel and, and uh, interviewed like 75, you know, pilots and tank people and everything. And uh, this, there was one pilot who told me this thing. There's a, a saying in, um, in Hebrew, Dvekut ba And what it means is, Mesima means mission, and Vikut means glued to. And this was sort of the concept that, that, that the Israeli army, air force, and everybody had in those days was that, um, and this is a military concept, right? And it's all, is the mission is everything. You know, at all costs, the, and this is what the Navy SEALs and the Marines and everybody else has that too, but it's, it's, and of course it can be overstated and overdone, but in that cockpit, in that pilot, you know, in that airplane, um, or in whatever you're trying to do, that attitude that the mission is everything, you know, at all costs, it must be, you know, accomplished one way or another, is, is a, uh, I don't know how you can do anything without that concept, you know, mm. and um, they don't teach it to you in school, I don't think, here. You know? No. Um, the mission It may is- be hardcore, I don't mean to sound too hardcore about it, but it's certainly a great uh, attitude to have if you can if you can if you can have that attitude. Living from a place of, of purpose and and being and and being driven by a mission, something bigger than yourself. Yeah, or even if it's selfish, you know, mm-hmm. if you're, writing, you're writing a book that's kind of selfish in a way, you know. But the, whatever you whatever it is that you that you want to do, I think um, to, to do it with a do or die attitude is. Really, the only way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna Otherwise, do it, you're going to cop out somewhere along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of writing a book, I do. I would be personally be remiss. I know you, it, for for you, uh, you know, it's not necessarily. But Men at Arms, which is the story of of a warrior. How did this? How did this uh, for you? Which is your most recent book? Um, how did this story? Like, what? How did you know that this was a muse that needed to be? that need to be channeled into this particular uh, that's, story? That's a great question. Thanks for plugging the book. <laughs> but uh, this was uh, the, the central character of The Man at Arms is a recurring character from other books of mine. And he's the only recurring character. His name is Telamon of Arcadia. He's like the one-man killing machine of the ancient world, like the Clint Eastwood of the samurai, you know, Kyuzo of the ancient world. And for years, I've been trying to write a book only about him because I've just really been curious about his odyssey. And people have written to me, when are you going to write a book about Telemann? When are you going to do it? So, and I never could find a story. I tried it, you know, I did outline, outline, outline. I never could find it over the years. And finally, I just kind of, the story kind of came to me or the, the element came to me. And so there was no doubt in my mind on that one. Once I started that this was, this was the one that I wanted to do. What was a bit? What, what was the? What what came through? Like, did this come through you easily? This this, yes. this narrative? It, yes, it, it did. It, it yeah. flowed. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, it came very easily, yeah. How long, if I can ask, how long did it take, how long was the process for you? It was not quite two years, but, um, which is short, um, but I've spent almost as much time, we talked about this earlier, promoting this damn thing than as writing it, you know? But that's the, that's the new world, that's a whole other story. But yeah, it did come, you know, it sort of, uh, um, it came in peace, 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 and then it was, you know? Not all at once, not in one thing, not in one day, not in one flash, but I thought, oh, this is a good idea if I do with this kind of thing. And I thought, well, what if I have that? And I go, oh, that makes it better, you know? And what if I do, you know, that, that's, that was the way it sort of came together, which I imagine is the way a lot of things come together. I'm sure Star Wars came together like that. Exactly. You're, what you're talking about to me is like this notion of process, which I'm going to really, yeah. really reflect on, honestly, after this conversation, because you've kind of given me almost like some left turns, if you will, where, uh -huh. I'm, not, where I'm thinking about things in, in a totally different way and, and in a good way, I think in a very grounding sense. Uh -huh. But I feel like th this is sort of separate but related. I, f I feel like this notion of, uh, of, of, of kind of um, Tim Ferriss, actually, who I, I listened to your incredible uh -huh. interview with, but he talks about this concept of like when you're doing one thing, and I, I just be interested in your take on it, right? He's writing a book. You know, he does something totally unrelated to the book to take, and, and I don't know, you may be totally, I'm not aligned with this, but <laughs> you know, to, that's, that's like, I'm just making this up, but like cooking class or like knitting, something that's like totally antithetical. Like you're writing a book about an, you know, an amazing warrior and you do something that's, that, that's totally turns your brain in a different direction. So as to be able to step back into, uh, onto the field and get back into that discipline pursuit. So for you, and I don't know if that's accurate for you, but when you're in that process, in that two-year process, and you are in your day-to-day -day showing up, as you, as you talk about, in this, in this notion of, of your process, are there ever times where you have to like take a left, like where you've, gotta, where you've gotta do something to give yourself rest or whatever to be able to find how those piece, piece, piece work together? Yes, yes and no. Okay. Um, I would think like taking a cooking class or something like that, for me, would be a form of resistance. Got you know. Uh, now, on the other hand, like when I was working on one book, I went for a, a month to Scotland, and I, I rented a place on a farm in Scotland, and I and I, I brought my golf clubs, and I would work all morning in my little cottage, and then I would go play golf in the afternoon, and that really that worked like a charm for me uh, over there. Um, but in general, I would be from the other school. Okay. I would be from the, the school of, you know, we're going to Moscow, you know, Napoleon or whatever is probably a bad analogy, but uh, we're, you know, we're marching to Pretoria and we're not going to stop for anything. You know? I think the, the takeaway I've gotten from this conversation is just this, I, I think, I feel like for me at least, there's many things, but discipline and focus, I feel like, and, and in some ways, frankly, cutting through Cutting through the bullshit feels like a core aspect of the ethos of, of, of this. I think, let me say one other yeah, thing. Yeah, please. I would not, for me, discipline and focus is like when I'm working. Mm. In those few hours, the rest of the day, I'm a complete flake, mm. you know? And so it's not like I'm grinding 24 hours a day. And I think that's absolutely fine. Mm. But focus while you're working and then go surfing or do whatever it is that takes your mind off it. 
Okay, beautiful. So it's so it's it's that it's 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 not about the not doing the other thing to the left. It's just having a discipline, like have like in that notion of being a pro. When you're doing the thing, you're just doing yeah, the thing. Yeah. Like, you, Which is not to say that go take out a cooking class won't work. Maybe it works for Tim. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. But for uh, you, it was the golf like that. But but you were also saying that that was in that particular context. Yeah. Yeah. You you, you don't see. In other words, you don't see the process of birthing a masterful work as as you know this. It, it's not. It doesn't have to look a particular way. But one thing that that seems to be underpinning it all is that designated time where there's where that is the, the sole yeah. focus. I mean, if you think times. about how a directors making movies. Think about Francis Ford Coppola doing Apocalypse Now or Ridley Scott doing anything. I mean, these guys are, you know, you're immersed in it, Yeah. you know, for, and even once you're done shooting it, then it just begins in post-production, right? Then the whole thing is, the story changes, oh, we don't have the footage to, you know, so, and they're committed for however many, you know, two years, three years or something. That's a real intense that's more intense than I can handle. Because <laughs> they don't get a break at all. No. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. Well, I, I want to honor your time, and I'm, I'm so grateful. Um, we'll do this again, Michael. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm Why looking you, forward to yeah. it. No, yeah. I, I feel like you, when I, just a, just a moment, if you, I, I know you're a humble guy, and I think it's just something I, I personally would like to share, which is, I, you know, I was just in Mexico. You, we sure were, yeah. we, were, uh -huh. we were just talking about it. And, um, you know, one of the things, uh, that I noticed was there are a lot of people that, uh, that, that pretend to be a lot of things. I'll just put it like that. And, mm -hmm. and there I talk about, uh, you know, people who, who wear the clothes of, uh, of a certain uh -huh. distinction, but don't necessarily embody the virtues. Uh -huh. And I just want to acknowledge you for me, at least in, in life, the people that are, that are, that, uh, that you that, that it's their way of being that you can tell is their is their true teaching. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like you're obviously of the best I've ever met with words, but you don't use them you don't use them use them in a fluffy way. Like I feel like you're 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 embodied in who you are, and you choose your words in a way that to me evokes new worlds of possibility. So I just want to I feel well, like you, I just want to acknowledge you because I feel like there's a lot of people that uh, talk talk. But not I, in, in my experience, not as many that I feel like practice what they pe preach and exemplify. Especially, I think some of the harder aspects, uh, some of the less exalted Instagram aspects of life. And so, I feel like you have have been a great gift to my life in the legacy of of your work and the work that you're still uh, that you're still putting out in the world. But also, it's it's just really an honor to meet you because um, I admire your way of being. Uh -huh. And I will say to you, Michael, thank you very much for that, but that I can feel that you, what you're doing, you, the paths that you've been on, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's coming together into something, you know? Yeah. I'm not sure what it is, and you're a young guy, so don't put any pressure on yourself, you know? In that way, it's, it, it, I, I, I definitely see you going nowhere but up and nowhere but, you know, to your whatever your truest calling is in the end. So God bless you. Thank you for, for uh, having me on the podcast. Thank you, Stephen Pressfield. All right. An honor. Thank you, my friend. Okay. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this incredible episode with the one and only Stephen Pressfield. I would love your feedback, your thoughts. Um, you can tag me at Michael Trainer and at Stephen Pressfield. 
Let us know the value that you got from the episode. Take a screenshot and share it on Instagram. Let us know the the key takeaway, the key insight that you're going to use and apply in your own life. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. I know many of us struggle with our creative process and staying on point. And I think Stephen is the personification of what it means to, to turn pro and to commit to your creative process day in and day out. If you did enjoy the episode, it'd mean the world to me if you left a rating and review on iTunes. Uh, it helps us to grow the show. It helps me to get great guests. And it's, uh, it's, gr- it's a great way, basically, to receive feedback. And I, I read every review. I'm grateful for them all. And frankly, I'm just grateful for you guys listening. It means the world to me. So I hope you were inspired. I hope you use some of the insights to take action in your own life. And I hope you are having a beautiful journey to your inspired life.